Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. those things that would hinder us from taking that step. And Father, as we hear the word broken open for us today, especially about the, the beauty of communion, help us to receive that truth as we celebrate together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Grab the Word, grab your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. We've been preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper. That's what Tom has led us through today, is that we've been looking inside and looking up. Preparing our hearts. And so now we're going to look at, uh, at this, this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. We're going to go all the way to the end of the, the chapter. Before I read, I just want to tell you we had a great weekend. We had a great weekend. We took uh, 13 men with us to Johnny Hunt's men's conference uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. It was amazing, a great time. There were about 2,000 other men there with us. And it was awesome. There is something special about having 2,000 voices in one place raising their voice to Jesus. Great time. Great time. It was just a good time. Second, the thing I want to say, I have a confession to make. Before I, I came to church, I, I hit my three children and my wife with snowballs this morning. It was fun. So, uh, wow, that was, that, was, that was an interesting intro. All right, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. I'm going to read this for us. I'm going to read this for us. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in a moment when we get to the main part of our passage. It says, but in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you 
come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order to prove those who are genuine among you, that they may be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord. Now, would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it is not for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. Father, speak to us right now. Teach us from your word that we might understand to a greater degree what the Lord's Supper is, what this thing called communion is, what Paul received from the Lord, what Jesus Christ himself instituted. Let us understand what it is and may it become more meaningful to us than ever. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, we're just going to dive right in. Here's what I want you to understand. There was a couple problems in Corinth. Paul starts out, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, with those problems. And they fall into two categories. The first one is that there is no communion when they're taking communion. There's no communion. What I mean by that is there's no community. Did you see what Paul said? He said right there in the very beginning of chapter 11, verse 17, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together, I hear that there are what? Divisions among you. Divisions among you. What Paul's saying to these people is, I know you have come here to take the Lord's Supper, to take communion, but when in doing so, there is no community. There's not community in communion. 
and they missed it. There are divisions and factions. I know that it's incredible to believe that in church history there's ever been a faction or a division inside the church. We've <laughs> It's true though. The only reason I know it is because it's in the Bible, of course. Factions and divisions inside the church. And listen, church family, I see more factions and divisions inside God's church today than I do inside God's scripture. And I don't just mean here, but I do mean here. I mean to say that it's so easy in this day and time for us to get frustrated, isn't it? you got to work with me a little this morning. It's so easy to get frustrated at people and things. Do you know, I wish our world could just have a, a sane conversation about any given topic right now. But we can't, can we? The tension in, inside our nation is unlike a tension that I've ever experienced. Maybe some of you have. But guess what? That bleeds over inside the church. And there are divisions. And whether it's a division over a specific theology or a division over a certain practice, it's really easy to get frustrated. And now even, because we live in such a consumeristic mentality, within the church, I believe that church is really out to meet my needs. And when the church isn't meeting my needs, I tell somebody about it. There are divisions and factions in the Corinthian church that are keeping communion from happening because the community within inside the body is broken. I want you to understand, church family, one of the biggest things that God calls us to is to protect that community to protect that fellowship. It's a gift of the Spirit of God. Unity does not come from man-made uh, exercises. Unity is a gift of the Holy Spirit that we fight for to protect. And he says, I hear that when you come together, there's factions and divisions among you. Now, I'm not going to commend you in that, Paul says. The second problem in the Corinthian church is they didn't understand not only was there no communion, there's no understanding. They did not understand that worshiping Christ or worshiping through communion was Christ-centered and not self-centered. I want you to see it in the passage. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Can you believe that's happening inside the church? They're not thinking about other people. They're thinking only about themselves. See, the people of Corinth were trying to make sure that their needs were met and their wants were met before the needs and wants of anybody else. I think that there are a lot of things that we as a church could glean from this passage about Corinth and apply to us. That when we come together, what Tom does here and what I do here isn't ultimately for you. And those on this stage, Tom reminds them regularly 
And I'm so thankful for the reminder that they worship for an audience of one. When you come to church, church isn't about you. How dare him? I'm going to go find another church. We view churches and services from the the wrong mindset so often. We view churches and services from the mindset of, I'm going to see what this church can do for me. How this church can benefit me. I want to see how this church can meet the needs of me and my family. We don't look through the lens of Scripture that says, God's not brought me here so that my needs can be met, but He's brought me here so that I could be a part of the family of God and so that I might, through the gifts that He's given me, meet the needs of others. We should be asking God the question, God, you say throughout Scripture that you will build your church. But you do so in a way that every member of every church is necessary and important within the body. So what part of the body is lacking that I'm not fulfilling? And how can I help join you that you would use me as an instrument in your hand to build your church stronger, deeper, wider? See, in the Corinthian church, there was no communion in communion. And there was no understanding about what communion really was. And so when they were coming together, they were fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13 where it says, They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How easy is that to fulfill in our own lives? We can drink this cup and take this body, and we can do it with our lips, and our hearts are far from Him. We can sing songs to the Lord, much like some of us might have been doing a few minutes ago, with our lips, but our hearts are so distanced from Him that our songs aren't pleasing. They were worshiping without understanding. And so Paul brings them back. Let me remind you, church. Let me remind you of why we do what we do. And so he brings them to verse 23. And I want you to see this. I think this is important. He says, For I received from the Lord. I want you to understand that the, this thing called communion is not a man-made tradition. But it's a God-ordained part of our community. It is something that Jesus Christ Himself commanded us to do. So therefore, we should not take it lightly. We should not take this, this cup lightly. So he, he reminds them, I'm going I'm to remind you what communion is, church family. 
And so he says it's, it's essentially three things. First, he says it's recollection. It's recollection. It's remembering something. Verse 23 says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in what? You see what he says? It's recollection. Do this in remembrance. Bring to your mind what was accomplished as you do this. Then he, he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in what? Remembrance of me. He's saying, we take the Lord's Supper, we take this communion, this cup of wine and this piece of bread, we take it in recollecting what Christ has accomplished for us. He said there's a body that was broken and there was blood that was shed. Well, why in the world was a body broken and blood shed for me? Back in Genesis chapter 3, all was well for a short time. The Father had created Adam and Eve, placed them in a garden, and given them unlimited access. How many of you want unlimited access to God? I sure do. Unlimited access to a lot of things sounds pretty good. The buffet line, you know what I mean? Unlimited access. God gave them, you can come to me anytime. He walked with them in the cool of the garden, or in, in the cool of the day in the garden. He walked with them. He talked to them. They knew God face to face, whatever that meant for them. I don't know. But God walked with them. There was direct connection. When they called out to him, God was there. They never thought to themselves, God, do you hear me? God's presence was tangible. And then they rebelled against God. They chose to sin against a holy God, and there in sinning against a holy God, the consequences of sin were brought upon them. God promised a consequence. If you eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. They ate of that tree. Adam and Eve took of that fruit, bit into it. In the instant they took of that fruit, their eyes were opened and they knew what they had done and they were filled with shame. See, before they were naked before God and unashamed. And I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures of what Christ has come to restore in us. Is that we can stand before God naked, exposed. I don't have to hide anything from Him. He knows it all and He has forgiven it all. And then one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3. It said they heard the voice of the Lord calling to them and they hid from God. Man, isn't that sad? And isn't that our tendency? They hid from Him because of their sin. They were shamed. And they hid from God. God said, children, where are you? 
question, did God know where they were? What was God trying to elicit in them? Confession. God, Father, we have messed up. We have rebelled against you. We're so sorry. That's not what they did. Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat? God, it was her fault. Well, and you gave her to me, so really you're the one to blame. It wasn't me. It was a serpent. Instead of confession before God, there was blame shifting. And then God put a curse upon the serpent and upon Adam and upon Eve. Do you remember what the curse was? The curse in Genesis chapter 3 says that um, the serpent would crawl on his belly all the days of his life. He'd eat dust for dinner. And that one day, the seed of the woman would be at war with the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent would bite the heel of the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman, in that same instant, would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Do you remember that? There was a curse upon the serpent. There was a curse upon Adam. Adam, I have put you here to tend and to care for this garden. And it would have been really easy, but now you done, you done did it. Now, instead of producing fruit, it's going to bring thorns, it's going to bring thistles. Eve, let me get to you. Childbearing's going to hurt. Be aware. Like a lot? Like a lot. It's going to hurt. And even you're going to be at enmity with your spouse. There was a curse there that day. But God is merciful and kind and gracious and compassionate. Because right there in the garden, God took an animal and shed the blood of an animal that didn't deserve to die. And He used the skins of that animal to cover their nakedness and their shame. In God, a heartbroken Father and Creator, asked His beloved creation to leave the very garden that they in, were intended to live in. And He placed a cherubim, do you remember this? With a flaming sword at the gate of the garden so that they could not get back in. We're getting up to Valentine's Day. Cherubims are not fat babies with arrows, okay? That's a cherubim. An angel with a flaming sword, so terrifying that I don't want a piece of him. Ryan, what does that have to do with it? Well, from that time on, man and woman had some level of separation from God. Sin increased from generation to generation. God gave them the law that they might know Him and love Him and worship Him. But they couldn't keep it. God gave them the temple where His presence would reside in the Old Testament where they could worship Him and they could make sacrifices so that um, they, their sins could be atoned for for a short while. And there in the temple, 
In Exodus chapter 26, verse 31, there's this little phrase that we often will skip over, but I want you to see it. There was a veil in the temple. This is what the instructions to make the veil in the temple were. You shall make the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with what woven into it? Cherubim woven into it. What's God saying? Behind this curtain, there's a presence that you are not able to enter in because of your sin. Do you see it? That curtain in the temple that uh, uh, was in between the holy place and the holy of holies, that only one priest once a year could get behind that curtain, and they tied a rope to him and a bell around his waist just in case... He sinned and died in the very presence of God. The other priest could drag him out. It was that holy. It was, there was that much glory residing in the holy of holies that only one person could go in there at one time a year to offer sacrifice for the sins of Israel. Then God sent prophets. Warning them, you don't turn away from me. If you turn away from me, God said, I'll give you over to the Babylonians or to the Assyrians. I'll send you away into exile. Don't turn away from me, return to me. But they didn't return to him. So God kept his word, sent them into exile, gave them over to the hands of their enemies until there was a time of 400 years of silence. And after that 400 years, the first prophet rose up whose name was John the Baptist. And he rose up declaring, make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Jesus showed up on the picture, or on the scene. And Jesus was born of a virgin. Why? Why is he born of a virgin? Because he does not bear Adam's sinful nature. He's not bringing that along. There's a new nature in this man. He's known as the second Adam. What the first Adam broke because of sin, the second Adam was going to restore because of his righteousness. Jesus came on the scene perfect, sinless, never once broke his parents' command. lived a sinless life, and near the end of his life, he was beaten, scourged, and his body broken. The scourging process was a cat of nine tails. It had sharp uh, objects on the end of leather straps, and when they would hit somebody with it, those objects would drive into the flesh of a body that when they pulled that cat of nine tails off of him, it pulled pieces of him off. His body broken. The cross, a horrible experience of God's judgment where What really killed somebody on the cross was suffocation from exhaustion. To breathe on a cross, you would have had to lift yourself up 
through the nail that's through your wrists or hands and the nail that's in your feet or legs. You would lift yourself up so that your lungs could expand enough to get a deep breath. Sooner or later, the physical, physical exhaustion gave way to suffocation. They came because of all that was happening on that that terrifying day of the Lord where Jesus was hanging on the cross, they came to break the legs of Jesus, our Savior. But the Psalms prophesy that not a single bone in His body would be broken. So they came to Jesus, and they said, He's already dead, go on to the next one. So instead of breaking His legs, what did they do? They stuck a spear in His side. His body was broken for us. There on the cross, hear me church family, here's what Christ accomplished for us. The curse of sin was placed on the head of our Savior. Adam, instead of bearing fruit in your garden, your garden's going to bear thorns and what? Thistles. What was it that Christ our Savior bore there on a cross on his brow? A crown of thorns. So the very curse that we received because of our sin was placed on the head of our Savior. Eve, having children's going to hurt. But your Redeemer's going to come through the process of your pain. And through the curse... I'll bring a restorer, a restorer, a redeemer, one who will save you from the curse of your sin. There on the cross, Satan thought he had spoken the last word. But Jesus triumphantly cried out, it is finished. And he breathed his last and Satan laughed until the third day. When Christ rose in victory, conquering the curse of sin and death. There on the cross, as Jesus breathed his last, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried that out quoting Psalm 22, written some 1,000 years before that portrayed the crucifixion, which had crucifixion had not yet been invented. He portrayed that crucifixion in Psalm 22, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he cry that out? Because there on the cross, the Father forsook the Son so that he might bring you and I who believe into his family. Christ was forsaken on our behalf. And there as he breathed his last, he yielded up his spirit. The earth quaked and the veil in the temple was torn. What's on the veil? Cherubim. Do you see it? Christ died body broken, blood shed, not just to forgive you of your sins, but to bring you to God. We got unlimited access to the Father now. 
Isn't that good news? He said, recollect. Do it in remembrance of me. The curse is broken. Galatians 3 said that the curse is broken because Christ himself bore the curse for us. Because the scriptures say, curse is everyone, anyone who's hanged on a tree. He says, recollect. Second, he says, proclaim. The Lord's Supper proclaims. Look at down at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You proclaim it. The Lord's Supper is one of the clearest ways that we can proclaim the gospel. This is a scriptural illustration that people see so they understand what Christ did. This is why I don't think you can take the Lord's Supper too much. Because it's not about you. It's about remembering and proclaiming. What's our mission? We exist to help every person become a more devoted disciple of Jesus by what? What's the first thing? Declaring the gospel. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. Because we need to be reminded of it and people need to hear about it. He says, proclaim it. Don't just do it, proclaim it. And then he said, you gotta, it's about expectation. Listen to what he says at the end of verse 26. Every time you do it, you eat this bread, you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I need you to know, some of you think I'm about to sound like an idiot when when I say Jesus is coming back. He's kept all of his promises this far, or thus far. I bet he's going to keep this one. He said, just as you saw me ascend to the Father, so will I return on the clouds with glory. The first time he came as a gentle, meek, lowly Savior. The second time he's coming, he's coming back as a ruling, reigning, victorious king. He's not coming to bear a cross. He's coming this time to bear a sword. And we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now some of us, we say, oh, come back right now. And I'm not ready for that. Let me tell you why I'm not ready for that. Because there are too many people in my life and in my world that if Jesus were to come back, would spend an eternity separated from His mercy and an eternity under His wrath. Listen, let us not be so self-centered that we want Him to come back today because our world's not ready. I will endure suffering in the world in which I live if that means somebody can hear the gospel through me. Jesus is coming back. There, Christ is going to return in victory. There will be a shout of triumph. The eastern sky will crack. The trumpets will sound. And the dead in Christ will rise. And all who are alive will ascend with Him. 
He's coming back for his church. I don't mean for Seneca Baptist Church. I mean for every blood-bought person who is trusted in Christ. He's coming back for you. Sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian, just like sitting in a garage doesn't make you a Ford. And at the time when he comes back, he's going to restore all things. I heard Johnny Hunter, I think it was Johnny Hunter, Pastor Jeremy, this weekend he said, when Jesus comes back, I'm never going to have an evil thought again. When Jesus comes back, I'm never going to say a critical word again. When Jesus is coming back, there's not going to be all this death in our world. When Jesus comes back, He's going to set all things right and He's going to make all things new. So He says, how do you prepare Verse 28, well, let me read 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. So there are two ways to prepare for the Lord's Supper. We examine ourselves and then we consider others. We examine ourselves and consider others. And I just want you to know that we get that backward all the time. We consider ourselves and examine others. You ever sat in church and the preacher was preaching and you thought to yourself, oh man, so-and-so really needs to hear this. You missed it. Examine yourselves. Consider others. What does he mean, examine yourself? We sang songs to a holy God with unconfessed sin in our lives. We sang praises to God just a few minutes ago with sin in our hearts that we're not even sorry for. Examine yourself. See, the Corinthian church was unwilling to get logs out of their eyes, but they were definitely willing to point out the specks in others. They were unwilling to see the sinfulness of their own church because they were so focused on having their needs met. And that led to a discipline that came from the Lord. I want you to look at it. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Whoa. Well, God, he, sh he wouldn't do that today, would he? The Bible that I read says that he's the same yesterday, today, forever. Do I believe that some of his saints have gone on to be with the Lord before their time because they would not deal with the sin in their hearts? Yes. Do I believe that the Lord looked down from heaven and said, it's better for the church that I take them out of it? 
then I leave them in it? He says, examine yourself. See, the harder the heart, the more severe the discipline's got to be to restore it. He says, examine yourself and consider others. Consider others. There are factions. Remember, there are factions and divisions in the church. Do you know that this thing called the Lord's Supper, called communion, that, that thing that it represents called the cross of Jesus Christ, makes all of those factions and divisions seem stupid, paling in comparison to what He has done for us. You mean you're arguing about what? You're divided over what? Do you not understand what I did for you? Do you not understand the truth of Ephesians 2? That my broken body tore down every dividing wall inside the church? There's no barrier too great for the body of Christ not to span. Do you understand? You've got Jesus in common with every person around you. Don't let the other stuff get in the way. Examine yourself and consider others. So I'm going to ask you, have you examined yourself lately? Some of you in this room... You have never trusted in Jesus Christ. Well, I believe that Jesus is real. I believe in God. So do the demons. The difference is not some agreement with a set of facts. I believe that. I agree with that doctrine. That's not saving faith. Saving faith says, I trust you. I surrender to you. I will stop trying to please you of my own strength, and I will start believing that Christ pleased you through His death, and that if I would be hidden in Christ, that when you look at my broken life, you'd see His sinless one covering me. Some of you, you've never trusted Jesus. You've been in church all your life. You've been this denomination or that denomination but you've never been a Christian. And today Christ is saying to you, let each person examine himself. Some of us, we have unconfessed sin in our life. It's time to confess it. You'll never be set free from that which you have not brought before the Lord. I heard a quote. He said, you, you bring your sin before the Lord. And the Lord will cover it. You cover your sin before the Lord. And the Lord will bring your sin up. You cover your sin and God's going to bring it up to you at a later day. 
You bring your sin to him and he'll cover it with his precious blood. I'm going to ask you to join me in a moment of response. We're going to do things different, Mr. Tom. Just a moment of response. Miss Margaret, would you play for us? Of silent meditation where you examine yourself. Would you do that? Father, there are people in this room who need to deal with you. They need to meet with you. They need to stop playing games with you and they need to start examining themselves. There are people watching online that, that need to deal with you. They have been in the church, but they've never been made a part of the church. They've been associated with Christians, but they're not Christians. They're, they're people among us who on that day when Christ returns, they will not shout victoriously, but they will wail with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, would you deal with people here? Maybe there's somebody in this room Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. There's somebody in this room who says, Pastor, I've been fooling myself. I need to get right with God. I know that if I died right now, I have doubts that I'd go to heaven. Maybe you're in this room. You say, I want to I trust Christ today. I want to surrender my life to Him. If that's you, I'd like for you to slide your hand up so that I see you. It's just me looking. Nobody else is looking. I see your hand. Is there anybody else that says, I've been fooling myself? I want to trust Jesus. Praise God. If you raised your hand today, would you reach out to me this week? I want to talk to you about that. Father, thank you that, that it's in Christ that we can be forgiven. And it's in Christ that we can be brought to you. It's through what Christ has accomplished that's the only hope that we have. And Father, may our lives be hidden with Christ in God. We love you, Lord. So grateful for your salvation. Thank you for your broken body and shed blood. And so what we are about to do, Father, we do in remembrance of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.